If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Anyone who's ever had a really great haircut knows the power of a killer hairdo. And what better way to ensure that you've never got a strand out of place than wearing a wig? A major new exhibition of royal portraits Tudors to Windsor's, is now open at the National Maritime Museum. And from the fiery locks of Elizabeth I to the luxuriant periwigs of Charles II, many of these portraits deploy wigs to dazzling effect. I spoke to curator Sue Pritchard about the power of royal portraits and what they can tell us about changing fashions in wigs. And if you want to see some of the portraits that Sue and I discussed in this conversation, we've posted some on Instagram. So just follow us at History Extra to see those. The National Maritime Museum's new exhibition, Tudors to Windsor's British Royal Portraits, looks at the ways that British monarchs have portrayed themselves or been portrayed over the last 500 years. So how have royal figures used portraits over time? What purpose have they served? Well, it's basically propaganda. It's a way of promoting themselves, uh, not only on a national stage, but on an international stage. So a lot of royal portraits were used to um, enhance that sense of their own magnificence. So often you'll see in the portraits, they're dressed in sumptuous fabrics. Uh, They're quite often um, covered in jewels. 
Um, but also portraiture was used on the marriage market. So particularly for women, um, you'll find that the, the portraits are being sent prospective uh, suitors. And this was particularly the case uh, with poor old um, Anne of Cleves and Henry VIII, who Holbein produced this amazing portrait of Anne of Cleves. And Henry was absolutely besotted and thought he was going to get this really glamorous woman. And then, of course, she arrives in her flesh and he's terribly disappointed. You know, so, I mean, they, they are incredibly important. And they are, of course, the forerunners of photography. I mean, if we think now of uh, ourselves and our selfies, you know, we're always trying to produce images in the best light. We want our best possible person in, 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 in the sense of a, an image. Well, that makes me think that point about selfies. Was there an impetus for these royal portraits to be accurate or was it purely about making people look the best they could? So, of course, if an artist wants to retain royal patronage, he is going to um, produce the best possible image of the monarch because it's in his own best interest. No artist wants to do warts and all. We're not talking about Oliver Cromwell here. Um, And I think this is particularly pertinent in the case of Elizabeth I, who is incredibly self-aware of the potency of her image Um, and the fact that she's an ageing queen. And you see from the 1580s onwards um, that her portraits are really, you know, totally unrealistic. Um, She has this amazing youthful visage. um, And Roy Strong, so Roy Strong, the art historian, refers to this as the mask of youth where, um, you know, she's 55 in the Amada portrait, um, but she looks like a woman who's in her her early 30s. Um, and you'll see this right the way through from the 1580s, that Elizabeth is presenting herself as this youthful, vibrant queen who still is um, valid in terms of being a European monarch. Um, so this is a huge topic. So we thought that we would focus on um, one particular area of royal portraits, which is wigs. And Elizabeth, who you mentioned there, had some spectacular wigs. Can you tell us a bit about what we know about how she used wigs and why? Well, I think it's really important to understand that um, Elizabeth didn't really start to lose her hair um, until she took to the phone. You know, as a young woman, um, she had long, beautiful, golden tresses. And you'll see this in a portrait when she's around about 16, um, she had this gorgeous long red hair. Um, But it's really only after she she, um, ascends to the throne that she starts to lose her hair. Um, And of course, you know, again, this is a terrible, um, you know, terrible thing for a woman to suddenly find that she's losing her hair. And I think what's really interesting in the current climate is there's a lot of um, concern around the idea of long COVID. And one of the effects of long COVID is that women are losing their hair. So it's a a really um, topical kind of um, issue at the moment. But going back to Elizabeth, so... um, Yes, I mean, she starts to lose her hair. Um, she has her apothecaries creating all types of salves um, and pomades to try and reduce the hair loss. But she can't, she can't. Her, her hair starts to fall out. So she's using wigs to cover her baldness, basically. Um, and of course, wigs were used by men and women um, at this time to cover baldness. But Elizabeth uses it to fashion herself. Um, and so she creates this image of herself with this red hair, and red hair is incredibly important for Elizabeth because it is a sign of her legitimacy. So she's had this incredibly difficult um, childhood 
where um, her mother, Anne Boleyn, is, let's, let's not beat about the bush, she's murdered. Anne Boleyn is murdered by Henry VIII uh, because she can't produce an heir. And so Elizabeth no longer has legitimacy in terms of ascending to, to the throne. So she has this very traumatic um, childhood. Um, she has a very difficult relationship with her half-sister, half Mary I. But eventually she comes to the throne. So her red hair is her link to her father, Henry VIII. And it's about her legitimacy to the crown. So she has to maintain this red hair through the use of wigs. And she has over 80 wigs in her lifetime. Do any uh, of them still still exist, do we know? Well, no, um, I think, you know, it's really difficult when you when you try and um, think about the, you know, what, what material culture do we have left in terms of Elizabeth? Um, and the thing is, Elizabeth had this amazing wardrobe. Um, she had, you know, hundreds of dresses, um, all embellished with jewels and with gold. And, you know, she was very conscious, again, of image. So she used to have um, her wardrobe, her dresses on display at the Tower of London, on mannequins so that visiting dignitaries could go to an exhibition of her dresses just to see how magnificent this woman was and how sumptuous her wardrobe was. Um, and when she dies, um, James I and his queen consort, Anne of Denmark, come down to London and she inherits Elizabeth's wardrobe. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to rip all the jewels and the gold off the dresses um, because they they are incredibly expensive um she inherits her jewels well again um we do have portraits of anne of denmark in some of elizabeth's jewels but also it's in the Stuarts' best interests to sell off the family jewels and um, commission new ones because again it's about fashioning their own image but the really sad thing is that there was a huge fire at the great wardrobe which was situated just behind st paul's cathedral um, not the current St Paul's Cathedral, the, the original St Paul's Cathedral. And of course, it destroyed all of Elizabeth's dresses. So that's one of the reasons that we don't have any of the, the original dresses um, that Elizabeth wore. And of course, textiles are incredibly difficult to, to preserve. Um, in fact, the only, the only um, example we have is the, the piece of a petticoat um, that was discovered quite recently um, on an altar um, of a church. And this is uh, believed to have been a, um, a dress or a petticoat that was given to um, one of Elizabeth's ladies-in-waitings, and she kept this, and it was donated to the church. And it was eventually discovered quite recently. Um, and it went on display at um, uh, Hampton Court in a rather wonderful um, small exhibition um, around Elizabeth and power of her wardrobe. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting what you say about these wigs being both a protection measure to um, save her vanity, as it were, from, from baldness, but also a power play. Um, and she was incredibly reluctant to let anyone see her without her wig, wasn't she? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, um, Elizabeth was all about, you know, the um, the pomp and the ceremony and the image. Um, but of course, within the, the confines of her bedchamber, she could relax. She could be herself. Um, and the only people that had access to her very 
innermost sanctum was the Ladies of the Bedchamber. Um, and it's here that um, Elizabeth would... And Elizabeth wasn't a morning person. She said herself she wasn't a morning person. So she would rise late. Um, she would be dressed in a simple um, nightdress, possibly uh, wearing a, a gown over the top. But she would be devoid of her makeup and she would not wear her wig. But she could relax in this innermost, innermost sanctum. Um, but of course, there is this, um, you know, amazing story of um, uh, Robert um, Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who actually crosses the boundary physically um, and emotionally of Elizabeth's bedchamber. And Robert Devereux was a very handsome, very charismatic man. He was one of Elizabeth's favourites. But more importantly, he was the son of her cousin, Elizabeth Knollys, um, and the stepson of her childhood favourite, um, Robert Dudley. So there was an emotional connection here. Not only was he incredibly attractive and charismatic, but there was emotional, familial um, connection to Elizabeth. Um, and as we know, Robert Dudley was um, her absolute favourite. Um, they'd been imprisoned together in the Tower of London um, when she was a teenager. Um, she may have had a, a, an intimate connection with him, we don't know, but certainly, you know, he, he was her favourite. So she has this connection with, with um, Robert Devereux. Um, and it's also a tempestuous relationship. Um, they quite often, you know, they're in public, they fight a lot. And at one point, um, uh, Robert Devereux draws his sword upon her and she boxes his ears. Um, so he's incredibly charismatic. He's also incredibly ambitious. Um, and he defies her wishes and he goes off to Ireland to, to command an army there. And it all goes a little bit pear-shaped. And he rushes back because he needs to, to reassure her that everything is, is going okay. And a contemporary eyewitness account describes how he rushes through her palace, through the presence chamber, through the privy chamber, covered in mud, he's dirty, he's sweaty, he's obviously anxious because he needs to see the Queen, and he bursts into her bedchamber, and there she is, in her nightgown, devoid of makeup, without her wig, with just thin wisps of hair covering her ears. And for Elizabeth, this is, this is just the worst case scenario. But she's actually quite calm. She deals with it in a very calm, measured way. Um, she hears him out. She tells him to basically go home, go back to Essex House on the Strand, and she will see him later at court. But actually, she never sees him again. And that is it. Um, and he's eventually executed. And I think what's really interesting about that story is that in the same year, Elizabeth commissions the rainbow portrait. And this is one of the last portraits uh, that we have of Elizabeth, which is currently at Hatfield House. And she's in this extraordinary dress, which is covered in embroidered eyes and ears. So this idea that Elizabeth has eyes and ears everywhere. She's all seeing, all knowing. Um, and it seems as if it could possibly be a masked dress. She's got these gauzy wings as a sort of um, backdrop to her face. Again, we've got the mask of youth, so she's looking incredibly youthful, very vibrant, very glamorous. But more importantly, her hair is piled up high, it's curled, and she has these long red ringlets that cascade over her shoulders. 
And there's no proof, of course, that that um, this was a, a response to potentially the actions of um, Robert Devereux um, bursting into her bedchamber. But I like to think that this is her response to that. You know that she she's she's she feels in some ways violated, and her response would be, "Well, okay, I'm going to create the most magnificent portrait." You know, to you know, because who knows? I mean, he could have been gossiping all over Essex House. Um, we don't know if he did, but it was. I think it's her response to that moment where she feels that she has to validate um, again her appearance to the world. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Enlightening. You you do have a connection where you start to see this person as an actual person. Because they, the, the portraits are of real people and they may have been exaggerated and they may have been embellished and they may have been, you know, the artist may have flattered the individual. But fundamentally, we're talking about real people. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So beyond Elizabeth, how did gender play into the story of of wigs in this context? Because both men and women obviously adopted wigs at various points, didn't they? They did. They did. And as I say, um, wigs were really, you know, they were functional. They were covering um, boredness. Um, But I think what's really important in terms of gender is that idea of how women are being perceived as transgressing the laws of nature. Um, and you start to see this really in the early 17th century. So if we think about um, Anne of Denmark, um, James I's wife, um, when you look at portraits of her, um, she's got her hair piled high. So she's got almost like a, a beehive. Her hair is piled up high. Um, and again, encrusted with jewels and with pearls. Um, But from around about 1617, she cuts her hair. And this is seen as an absolute sin against nature. And uh, there's a pamphlet from 1620, um, which is entitled Hic Mulia. And it deals with the issue of women being perceived as men. So this idea of cross-dressing. Um, and they're very specific in this pamphlet. It's, it's, there are specific elements to a woman's um, dress and fashion which are perceived as transgressive. And one is the doublet, which is cut quite close to the waist. Another is the wearing of hats, but more importantly, it's women cutting their hair. So Anne of Denmark cut her hair, when you say short, how short are we talking? So she, um, if you look at, there's a portrait um, of um, Anne in um, 
hunting um, outfit with her horse, her her faithful dogs and her black groom. And it's set against the backdrop of, of Oatlands and it's in the Royal Collection. And it's a magnificent full-length um, portrait with sumptuous green um, riding um, outfit um, and the hat with the feather. But you can see she's got her hair um, cut short. So it, it is, it's very short. It is very short. Um, and of course, you know, Royalty are leaders of fashion, so all the ladies of the court were following Anna's example. She brought them all riding habits, again, cut close, um, very much like a male man's doublet, and they were cutting their hair. And this is this is being perceived as, you know, absolutely not the thing that women would do. And James is actually, um, you know, telling his preachers, get to the pulpits. You know, you've got to go out there and say this is against the laws of nature. It's a sin against God for women to cut their hair. Um, and so that, that whole debate and that argument, it, it really sort of persists until the 1630s. And then after James dies, it it, it tends to, to calm down. But it, it's resurrected again in the 1660s um, with the introduction of Charles II. And of course, you know, if we think about wigs, if we think about periwigs, it is Charles II that we think about. Um, and again, in the exhibition, we've got probably the most famous portrait of James II, where he's, he's, he's incredibly loose. I mean, with the Stuarts, he's all about sex, drugs and rock and roll. So he's laid back in his, in his chairs. His legs are akimbo. I mean, he was very proud of his legs and his well-turned ankle. But more importantly, he's got this amazing, you know, full-bottomed black wig again, which cascades over his chest. Interestingly, Charles doesn't lose his hair. It's not the fact that he's going bald that he just, you know, starts to wear a wig. It's the fact that he's going grey. So as soon as he takes the phone in the 1660, you know, very soon after that, his hair starts to go grey. Um, and that's when he starts to don a wig. Um, and it's very much influenced by French fashion. So Louis Fourteenth again, started to lose his hair at the age of 17, suffered from premature baldness, starts the fashion, kickstarts the fashion for wear, men wearing wigs. Um, obviously, uh, Charles and his his uh, brother, James, Duke of York, were exiled in France. They bring the fashion um, to England and they both start to wear these wigs. Um, and Pepys, who is always an absolute mine of gossip and information, um, says himself, it's, it's really only once um, Charles and James start to wear wigs that um, he decides that he's going to wear a wig as well. Um, and interesting for Pepys, he actually has his hair cut, um, gives his own hair to the wig maker, and the wig maker makes a wig out of his own hair. That's a very strange approach, surely. <laughs> well, not necessarily, because, you know, headlines were mm. absolutely rife um, in the um, Elizabethan and um, Stuart era. So, I mean, in many ways, it was um, a way, it was a hygiene issue. You know, if you had your hair cut short, then you wouldn't have to deal with the lice. But then you would put your, your, your wig on. Um, and, of course, wig makers were... Um, highly paid, highly skilled um, craftsmen. A lot of them came from, from France. In fact, actually, uh, Shakespeare rented a room of a Huguenot wig maker in Cripplegate. But of course, there was also a darker side to this. And you get contemporary accounts where there's concerns about um, wigs being made from the hair of dead plague victims. 
um, also wigs were being made from horse hair, you know, um, and animal hair, you know. So it it is a kind of quite a, a kind of controversial issue. Um, but again, for women um, in the Restoration period, you get the and again, you know, Pepys is fabulous for for his description of women at court who are wearing again riding jackets cut like men um, over their petticoats. They're wearing hats, broad brim and hats, uh, but more importantly, they're wearing periwigs. So to all intents and purposes, they look like men. And as as Pete says, and I did not like it. So when we're talking about periwigs particularly, what, what does that mean rather than just a, a normal wig? So if we think about um, a periwig, as I say, if we think about, you know, the 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 Charles II. It's the the long curly black wig, a bit that, like a judge's wig, a bit like now. a judge with on steroids. If you think about <laughs> it that way, it's a judge's wig on steroids. Um, and of course, really interestingly, when we were talking about Elizabeth um, and her red hair, Elizabeth's red hair set the trend for um, everyone at court having red hair. So her ladies would um, either commission wigs. Um, out of red hair or they would dye their own hair red Um, but by the time you get to the restoration court it's swung the other way and red hair is no longer popular so everybody wants black hair so everyone will be dyeing their hair black um, in line with the idea of of Charles but um, there's a fabulous portrait in in the exhibition it's it's my favourite of James Duke of York um, and I always say it's it's really James having a Versace moment. So it's a full length portrait, and James is dressed as Mar- uh, Mars, the god of war, um, because he's uh, the Lord High Admiral of the Seas. Um, and of course, to a contemporary audience, they would have understood exactly what was going on with James. You know, he is um, you know embodying that sense of of Mars, the god of war, um, but. You know, as I say, for us, we we he looks slightly ridiculous, to be honest, because <laughs> he's in this amazing um, overlapping armour. He's in a little short skirt. He's got these transparent green hose, but more importantly, these fabulous sandals, um, which are uh, cross-gartered with these little gold line heads at the top, but a brown full-bottomed wig. You know, it is the most fabulous thing by the artist Henri Gascar. Um, and as I say, to a contemporary audience, you know, they would have understood exactly what was going on symbolically. But, you know, when you you look at this and you just think it is definitely a Versace moment. <laughs> so if we move forward to the 18th century, it's probably the pinnacle of when wigs reached their peak in terms of ostentatiousness and, and I think it's fair to say silliness. Uh, what can you tell us about fashions of that time? Yes. So, I mean, you know, we're all familiar with the fabulous, you know, films of Marie Antoinette and the Duchess. And I mean, most famously in the Duchess, you've got that fabulous scene where Kira Knightley's wig catches fire and she has to sort of throw it to the ground. One of my favourite scenes. Um, But again, you know, the, 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 the fashion for these enormous kind of tall coiffures was set by the French court. Um... And you get these amazing um, satires of um, women and the extremes that they would go to um, with their wigs. But I think it's really important to understand that if you looked at the fashion plates at the time, you know, the satire is, yes, it is a little bit more extreme, but it isn't so far off the mark. You know, the, 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 the idea of these women 
wearing either enormous feathers in their hair or these towering wigs. Um, and you're seeing it in the satirical prints of um, Darley and Crooksank and Gilroy and Rowlandson. But um, Matthew Darley's satires are really interesting because he produces a series of comic prints um, of char- characters, caricatures and macaronis from around about the 1770s. And these are really fascinating. There's one which is called the um, the Flower Garden from um, 1777. And the um, the actual print is in the uh, Metropolitan uh, Museum of Arts collection. And it's a woman and she's got this towering um, wig or her hair is actually sort of been constructed using steel rods and um, sort of pads and hair. And at the top, it's um, it's a garden with topiary, and she's got a little Greek temple and a little man who's the gardener, you know. Um, and it's absolutely extraordinary how women would create these little dioramas in their hair. Um, and you get um, you get examples of women celebrating particular moments in history, particularly in France, because of course this is the moment of the the um, the American um, War of Independence and France is very much uh, aligned with America's cause. Um, And you're getting women who are dressing their hair with um, full-rigged ships. This becomes a a fashion. Or you'll get a celebration of the Montgolfiers brothers so that they create hairstyles in the shape of hot air balloons. Um, and this becomes a moral issue. So again, you get quite a lot of satire, this idea of the um, the vanity of women, the silliness of women. Um, but it's also women are also proclaiming their own polit- political allegiance, certainly with the idea of having um, ships in their hair. Um, but I think, you know, more importantly, there is this issue about women taking up space. Mm-hmm. And you see this with fashion throughout the centuries, um, particularly when you get to the 19th century and the crinoline. Um, but I think with the with the, the the hair and the wigs, it is about women taking up space. Um, and you get these accounts of, um, and again in satire, women being followed around by carpenters because they have to um, create larger doorways for women <laughs> to get through with their hair. And accounts of women going to the opera and um, incensed you know, opera goers who are sitting behind these women with this hair start to throw their shoes at them. Um, and then there's one ingenious um, inventor, I think it's Belair, um, Ballard, Ballard, um, who uh, creates a retractable wig so that you can, <laughs> so that you can actually, you know, lower it and raise it according to your needs. So, you know, there's this whole kind of inventiveness um, around these wigs. But as I say, I do think there are issues in terms of women taking up space, but also um, women who are declaring their political allegiance through their their use of certain motifs or attributes within the context of their hair. Can I ask an incredibly basic question about 18th century wigs, which is um, the wigs prior to this had more accurately, I guess, um, depicted real hair. So like you say, you had the red hair of Elizabeth, the black hair of Charles II. And then in this era, all the wigs that we think of are white and grey, which are not youthful. That's not a youthful colour, really, is it? Why 
was that the case? Well, I think they're being powered. It's this idea of powdered wigs. You know, again, it's a, it's a fashion. Um, and I think it, these are the things that's, that sort of tend to evolve um, around the idea of, and you're getting it certainly with men, you know, and the macaronis. So men with the, you know, the very, again, white makeup, the very, it's, it's artifice, artifice. You know, it's nothing's meant to be natural. Everything is about the the extremities of um, of the you know the, your appearance, which is why is this is why it becomes such a, a subject for ridicule. It's it's the absolute extremes. The more extreme you are, the more it indicates that you have time, money. You know, you are you you can afford to indulge yourself in all of these things. So if wigs became ever more extreme and we're building up towards the 18th century what what went wrong in the world of the wig really why did wigs die out quite simply french revolution that's it you know um you kind of get this whole anti-monarchy um feeling in france um you know it's the the wig becomes the the kind of symbol of all of the all of the that was wrong with the period, the decadence, the overindulgence. Um, and that's really at the point at which, you know, these enormous wigs um, really die out. Um, and also, I think with, with men, you get um, at the turn of the century, so from the, the sort of 18th to the 19th century, you get this whole debate around what it is to be masculine. So that rejection of the, the macaroni um, and sense that um, what what is it to be a man, those manly attributes. Mm. And so um, they very quickly vanish from royal portraits, of course. And what kind of image were people wanting to portray in royal portraits instead of this preposterous extravagance? Well, I think um, the important thing for um, Victoria is that sense of the family. Mm. This is where you're starting to get the, the, the family portraits. And so you're getting the monarchs surrounded by their family. Um, and I think particularly for, for Victoria, in a way, because she does, she is, she is mindful of the fact that um, she is really, um, you know, in some respects, the mirror image of Elizabeth, you know, that she is this woman who is, um, again, was not destined to take the crown. You know? um, it was only the fact that um, her uncle did not produce children that she was elevated um, onto the onto the royal royal scene. So um, I think you get that sense of those Victorian values coming through. Um, with with Victoria um, and that idea of, I mean, we always say that the Victorians invented childhood, but that idea mm. of the family, the home, the importance of the domestic sphere, um, the importance of women in the home. So for anyone who's going to go and visit the Tudors to Windsor's exhibition before October this year, what are some of the highlights that you think they should look out for? Well, I think um, there will be... Um, I think the important thing about royal portraiture is that if we think about that image of Anne Boleyn, you know, mm-hmm. um, the one portrait that was painted after her death, that is the portrait that has informed 
every single drama, film, contemporary response to, to Anne, that single image. Um, so it's so much part of our visual landscape. It's only when you actually come face to face with the artwork that you get that moment where you just think, I thought I knew this, but actually I don't. And exactly the same with um, the portrait of um, Elizabeth, the, the uh, Ditchley portrait, where she's, again, full length, fab, dressed in a fabulous ivory silk gown, embellished with jewels. She's got her foot on the map. And again, we, we're used to seeing it in reproduction. But when you come face to face with an artwork that is so magnificent, so imposing, it can be quite enlightening. You, you do have a connection where you start to see this person as an actual person. Because they, the, the portraits are of real people. And they may have been exaggerated and they may have been embellished and they may have been, you know, the artist may have flattered the individual. But fundamentally, we're talking about real people. My final question would just be, do you think that wigs in the royal context will ever make a comeback? Oh, do you know what? I think this is a really interesting question. Because, and again, if we think about what's happened over the last 15 months Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the real issues for absolutely everyone throughout the whole of lockdown was, when can I get to the hairdresser? <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's absolutely true. And God knows, I mean, my hair is, this is not natural by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that sense of, you know, what can I do with my hair? So I think when we think about whether wigs would make a comeback, I think, you know, we've talked about how post-COVID there will be almost a return to the 1920s and that idea of um, party central and people going out and having a fabulous time. And I just wonder if that would be a moment where the wig would make a comeback, where we would have the extremes of fashion yet again. That was Royal Museum's Greenwich curator, Sue Pritchard. The exhibition that we discussed, Tudors to Windsor's British Royal Portraits, is running now at the National Maritime Museum. You can find out more and book tickets at rmg.co.uk. And as I mentioned at the start, if you want to see a couple of the images that Sue and I discussed, we've posted some on our Instagram. Just follow us at History Extra to see those. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on the Ottoman Empire. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.